Well, good morning, saints. Welcome to Boulevard Bible Chapel via Facebook. Our plan this morning is to continue in our series of parables. We have two more to go, I believe, in our series. We've covered quite a number of them, not all. But this morning, the uh, text will be in Matthew chapter 22. Now, this particular parable was spoken during Passion Week. We've heard that referred to this morning. And Brother Gary brought forward Palm Sunday, what's typically called Palm Sunday, and the the, uh, triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. So as I understand it, and as the chronology in Matthew would show, um, the parable was spoken, spoken during Passion Week, sometime after the triumphal entry. So what I'd like to do, first of all, I wish I had a young brother to come and read, as we often do, but here we are. Uh, uh, separated one from the other, but able to join together electronically. So that's, I'm going to read, if you uh, care to follow along, just the 14 verses of Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called. But few are chosen. Just a few opening words about this parable, again spoken during Passion Week as the Lord Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and thus to the cross. First of all, the parable speaks to us of far more than back then. We're going to see as we go through the parable that it reaches into our very day and beyond. And that's a wonderful thing. And I'd just like to make a general comment about that, about the spiritual vision that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have. It is a marvelous thing, especially, especially in a time of crisis that we find ourselves in at this uh, moment. With our eye of faith, we're able to look back, right, to the past 
and see how all the uh, the wonder of creation roundabout began. We're able to look back and have confidence and have assurance about where we came from. But we're also able to look at the present and see what the living God, what the sovereign God is doing in the world in which we live. And as well, we're able to look forward. And that this parable is going to do that. We're going to be able to look forward and see what is going to happen. The Bible is a wonderful book. And I know those of us that know the Lord Jesus are thankful to have this spiritual vision. It's supernatural. You know, the world around doesn't have that, right? So we thank our God that we have a guidebook uh, that, that tells us not only about the past, but about the present and about the future. And then I just wanted to say something about the kingdom of heaven, because verse 2 is going to tell us that this parable uh, concerns the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, just a few things. Much could be said about the kingdom of heaven, but I just want to say this, that essentially, simply, it is a domain where God is acknowledged a society of humanity who profess the rule of God. Certainly part of the kingdom of heaven, we could, we could name Christendom. Christendom might be another name. Christendom is not in the Bible. But Christendom is, is a descriptive term of the Christian world, the Christian community. Because in the kingdom of heaven, we have... It is very clear in the word of God that we have a circle, as it were, a sphere of true believers. Those who acknowledge the rule of God. But within that circle as well are those that don't, that, that, that aren't true possessors of eternal life. So there is a circle with the kingdom of God with those that profess and those that possess. But the narrow aspect is those that truly know the Lord Jesus as Savior. The Lord Jesus said, I think it was in Matthew chapter 18, except you be converted and become as a little child, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. So those of us who know the Lord Jesus are in that narrow aspect. I wish I could make a better circle with my hands, but that narrow aspect of the kingdom of heaven who, who know the Lord Jesus for sure. But you can see in the kingdom of heaven, there are those, and it's going to come out in this parable, that don't know, that are not born again. Now, this is born out. We're going to be referring to Matthew chapter 13. We did cover that somewhat, I believe, back in January. But in Matthew chapter 13, there is a marvelous picture that the Lord Jesus gives us of the kingdom of heaven, like a grain of mustard seed, a small seed that was planted. But it, when it grew, you see, it grew into a great tree and the birds of the air began to lodge in the branches. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is. We have all kind of beliefs out there that they acknowledge the rule of God, but they're not truly born again. And they bring in all kind of false doctrine and they can lead true believers astray, you see. But that's what the kingdom of heaven is, a sphere where the rule of God is acknowledged. Wherever people submit to the rule of God, the kingdom of heaven exists. And thank the Lord that though we live, I should have mentioned this as well, though we live in a domain of darkness, 
those of us who know Christ as Savior, Colossians chapter 1 says that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. What a glorious privilege it is to be, to, to be delivered from that domain of darkness and be in the true kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew mentions the kingdom of heaven only. The other gospels mention the kingdom of God, but essentially as I understand it, they are the same thing. And uh, we could talk about that possibly in our discussion groups. One more thing about this parable is that we did cover one, uh, I believe, the same. Again, we might discuss that in Luke chapter 14. The Lord Jesus told about another supper. There are similarities and differences between the two. Of Luke uh, chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 22, a great supper there, a marriage feast here. So let's go ahead and, and begin and consider the uh, Matthew chapter 22 and the marriage feast. Actually, this is the third of a trilogy of parables. If we backed up to chapter number 21, we would see the first, the parable of the uh, two sons, the father had given them commandment. There, there's a parable of responsibility. Following that, there's a parable of the vineyard, the vineyard owner. There we have a parable of retribution. And in our parable today, Matthew chapter 22, we have a parable of rejection. Just a little bit of word about that first one and the second one, a parable of responsibility. And if you wanted to refer back, it's in Matthew chapter 21. The father had given a word, go work in my vineyard. Now, both sons were responsible to the father's command. The first son, right, he refused to go. But afterward, he repented and went, as we see in Matthew chapter 21. The second son promised to go, as his father had said, but he never did so. So the first son, who seemed to be rebellious, proved to be righteous. The second son, who seemed to be righteous, proved to be rebellious. Both were responsible to react to the word of their father. Just like the tax collectors, the two groups. We have the tax collectors and harlots, and we have the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders. They were all responsible to react, you see. Now, why were the chief priests and elders responsible? It says in verse number 32, because John came unto you in the way of righteousness. So consider the tax collectors and harlots were like the first son. They made no pretense of obeying John the Baptist. By the way, John the Baptist was the forerunner, right, of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus. They made no pretense of obeying John. But eventually, many of them did repent, right, and come and believe in the Lord Jesus. The religious leaders were like the second son. They professed to approve the way of righteousness which was preached by John. You remember that the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 5 uh, that uh, you were willing for a season to rejoice in the light that John brought. Just for a time. But it didn't last very long. And uh, But the lamp John was a lamp that burned and gave light, you see. And they were willing for that time. And, and probably thought, no doubt thought, they were, they were in that kingdom. Where in reality, they were just self-righteous individuals which will be born out. Uh, just like the tares, the tares or the darnel that was, was, was uh, gathered in with the wheat. So, they never confessed their sins or trusted the Savior. Therefore, we can conclude from that the 
that out-and-out sinners entered the kingdom of God while the self-satisfied religious leaders remained outside the kingdom. And it's the same today. Evident sinners, uh, 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 evident sinners receive the gospel more readily than those who are, have a covering of self-righteousness. Right? The Lord Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And not many self-righteous want to acknowledge themselves as needing a Savior and needing uh, uh, the Lord Jesus because they're righteous in their own self. But both are responsible to respond to the Savior. So there we have a parable of responsibility. Now, the second in that same chapter of 21 is the a parable of retribution. And by the way, all of these have to do with the nation of Israel and their uh, being put aside. The second was a parable of retribution. There in Matthew chapter 21, you had the, the God, the landowner. Then you had the vineyard, the nation of Israel. The vine dressers were Israel's priests and rulers and elders to whom was given the care of the vineyard. But what a miserable crowd they were, right? They, they, they took the vineyard and treated it as, as if it was their very own, right? And uh, the Lord graphically portrayed their persistent rebelliousness in their treatment of his own servants and especially in the treatment of his beloved son. What an awful thing. He said, surely the Lord said, I'm going to send my, my son. Surely they will reverence him. But no, they did not. But then notice in, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 40, the owner of the vineyard comes and what will he do to those vine dressers? The, the, the Lord Jesus said, or they said, that is, they, they were going to condemn themselves. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render the, to him the fruits in their seasons. Retribution. Retribution. They would pronounce, the religious leaders would pronounce their own judgment, right? He said, he, what will he do? The Lord asked him. He will miserably destroy them. And then the prophecy in verse 44 of Matthew chapter 21, uh, seems to be a, a primarily of judgment, where the Lord says, Whosoever shall fall in this stone shall be broken. But Jesus added, Whoever uh, uh, shall fall, the stone shall fall, would grind him to powder. So from such a judgment, they would never recover because they persisted in their unrepentant nature, right? And God only had to cast upon them retribution. So we come to our last, chapter 22, the one that we're considering this morning. Here is a parable of rejection. Why? What do we mean by that? Verse number seven, we understand, is the nation of Israel. He would reject Israel. And how do we know that? Because chapter 21, right, comes before chapter 22, right? And we have there, the, the, we read, Jesus answered, right? He was still speaking to the same group, right? The leadership of the nation. And they knew it. They understood. They perceived that the parable was spoken of them. And so he continued on in our parable in chapter number 22. Now, here, I referred to this a little earlier, here seems to be a prophetic parable, right? It's far-reaching in its scope. Why? Well, we'll answer that as we move on through the parable. So, looking at chapter 22 as a whole, verse 1 through 7, verse 8 through 14. In 1 through 7, we have the wedding feast empty. In verse 8 through 14, we have the wedding feast filled, right? Now, I want to say a word at the outset here about the wedding feast, because it seems to be an appropriate description of the unparalleled joy and celebrated joy which characterizes the king 
kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the way I understand it, and I'll give a little explanation as we move on. Essentially, the wedding feast is the blessings of the gospel. And God has called this feast in honor of his son and inviting people into this wonderful fellowship. What a marvelous thing to fellowship with the living God and to have that joy that only he could bring. You remember what he said, right? Was it John chapter 15? These things I say that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. What a wonderful thing to have the joy that only the living God could bring, only the Lord Jesus can bring. So it is for the Son in the honor of the Son that this feast is made. So the marriage feast which the king makes for his son and to which he invites guests typifies the gracious offer of God, the comfort, the blessings, the joy that he offers to those that wish to partake in it. Introducing the church here seems to unnecessarily confuse the parable. The main thought, as I understand it, in this parable of the wedding feast is the setting aside of Israel. The church, of course, is going to be born later in Acts chapter 2. This is not the distinctive call and destiny of the church, because some may want to, and I think have, and perhaps some have understood it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I believe we'll be able to see as we continue on through this that it cannot be that, but it seems to essentially... Uh, speak to us or symbolize the blessings of the gospel and the wonder that God has called us. <laughs> when we think of the domain of darkness that we're in and God has called us, we're going to see at the end of the parable what a, what a, what a contrast between light and dark, but we won't get ahead of ourselves. Notice there's three invitations. Uh, notice the word invited. Verse three, verse four, verse nine. The first two being extended to the nation of Israel. Now, at the time Jesus told this story in Matthew chapter 22, the first invitation had already been given. That had been directed to the Jewish people by the forerunner. We've referred to John the Baptist, right? And the Lord himself and his commissioned disciples, right? They were, uh, they would say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right. Now, the second invitation, as I uh, understand, I think we'll be able to prove as we move along in verse four through six, was issued to the Jews as well uh, on and immediately after Pentecost. Why? Why say that? How can we tell? Well, notice it says in verse four that everything is ready. All things are now ready. Now, I believe there's an implication there that the communion, uh, the basis of the communion for that joy, that peace had been accomplished. Life had been sacrificed for that feast, right? The ox and the fattened calves, I believe, point to the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus as the basis of the grace that we find as we come into that wonderful salvation. And this is, seems uh, visualized immediately after Pentecost and the uh, the death of the Lord Jesus. So the other servants in verse four, they're sent out. Right. And that speaks of the further testimony. We've had the first invitation. Now we have the second, the further testimony to the Jews in the book of Acts. All things are now ready. And believe it or not, the invitation was still given to the Jews, the very ones that had crucified the Lord Jesus. Right. The very ones that had rejected the son of God. 
and crucified him, the opening chapters of the book of Acts will, 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 will tell us, and throughout the, the Acts, actually, about this second call to Israel. Now, let me just elaborate a little here. Throughout the book of the Acts, <clears throat> the rule uh, for presenting the gospel invitation is to the Jew first. Remember, even Paul said that in Romans chapter 1. It was The invitation was given to come into this wonderful joy, this wonderful uh, kingdom, uh, that God has invited uh, mankind to, right? It was to the Jew first in the homeland, and then when they were scattered, some call it the diaspora, when they were dispersed, it was it was uh, it, the call, the invitation was given to them. But the vast majority, we can see uh, in the in the Acts, of the Jews would not come. Right, the vast majority. Some were indifferent. That's how what our parable says. Right. Some were indifferent. Some being more concerned with their merchandise than with the message. Right. They were more concerned with their own merchandise than with the message. Some were actively hostile. It says in the parable, the remnant took his servants, the apostles, that is the apostles, and treated them spitefully and slew them. Now we could see that borne out, just as verse six says. It's just a little. Tiny verse, but we can see that borne out in the Acts, right? It, if, as we go through, we can see the active hostility toward the servants of the Lord as he would invite them in. Acts chapter 4, right? James, uh, uh, Peter and James, right? Uh, Peter and John cast into prison, right? We, we keep going. We can see how in Acts chapter uh, 8, there was great persecution, Right? That the, the church was scattered. Saul of Tarsus, right? Then uh, unconverted, but persecuting the church. And then we, can, we keep going. We can see in Acts chapter 12, right? James killed by Herod with the sword, right? And so on. And if we keep going, of course, Paul would, would uh, tell how he as an apostle was uh, buffeted, reviled, persecuted, defamed, and made as the filth of the world. So we can see the active hostility that was, um, th that was put toward the servants that were inviting to the kingdom. What, a, what, a, what an awful thing, the, the treatment they had. But overall, we see the Jews had no pleasure in the thought of Jesus being their Messiah. He came unto his own. When we look through John, right? John chapter 1. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him, right? Although the Lord would have gathered them. You remember in Matthew chapter 23. How often, we said, would I have gathered you as a hen that gather her wings. But you would not. You would not. What a shameful thing. Oh, we're going to see as we end this, you know, there are those that will not, will not have what the Lord offers. What a, what a crying shame, right? Just a little word about the excuse, excuses in Matthew in, uh, chapter 22, verse 5. Some may be tempted to say, well, I'm not against Christ. I have nothing against the church. I don't have anything against Christianity. It's just that I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I have too many other things to occupy me. Even the ordinary activities of life. That's what, what seems to be brought out here. The Lord brings it out, I think, in Luke chapter 17. It's the ordinary activities of life, both city and country. Uh, here, you can see it uh, borne out in these verses. Business and money matters take priority to loyalty to the king. No, no, they said, we won't have it. 
the ordinary affairs of life. That would be, so there are those that say that even today. And sad to say, even in our time of crisis, we can see folks that still maintain that same attitude. The ordinary affairs, yes, it's important to stay healthy and so forth. But these kind of things, we've got to think about the real issue and what is beyond, right? There's a, there's a sin problem far worse than there is a COVID-19 problem or any other sickness or virus, right? You've heard the story, I know, about um, <clears throat> the preacher in a meeting some years ago that stood up in that meeting and he said something to this effect. He pronounced that he had a terminal disease. And he went on to identify it as Adamson's disease. Adam's sin disease. One of his relatives was in the audience and began to weep. Her own brother going to die. But he went on to explain. This was a spiritual matter. Adam's sin, disease passed on to him by one man. Sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. We're all infected. We all need a Savior. And we all have the remedy in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank our God for uh, what the Lord uh, can offer us. And even though we, we make excuses like these, right? But we're infected and we need the Savior. Now others, it says we're antagonistic uh, to the gospel. But notice this, notice this, that both classes failed to get into the marriage feast. Whether one is apathetic or antagonistic, to the gospel of God, the end will be the same. Whether we reject or whether one rejects or neglects the gospel, the end is the same. So, in the parable, when Israel rejected the invitation in verse number seven, God's patience was exhausted and he sent his armies. And we can see that historically uh, as being the Roman army that was sent to destroy Jerusalem, to uproot the nation and bring down the wrath, God's wrath upon the temple. Both the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and again, I believe, in Luke chapter 21 will bear this out. He foretold what would happen as the, the, uh, the city, the temple would be ransacked by uh, Titus and the Romans. Uh, this is brought out in other places as well. I believe, in the, you know, if you recall the last public utterance of the Lord Jesus as he was on his way to his cross, remember that there were some sympathetic followers coming behind the Lord Jesus and they were weeping. And the Lord stopped. Here he is going to his death. And the Lord stopped and he turned and he said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And the, and the coming judgment, and I believe there he was referring to this terrible destruction in um, AD 70. So, verse 8 and 9. There's a quest for guests. There's a quest for guests. There's the third invitation. Now, first, let's notice what he says about those initially invited. Notice what he says. That they were not worthy. What a phrase. He's referring to those that, that, that rejected the first and second invitation. The feast was ready. And those invited being not worthy. It, this seems to refer to the testimony after the Lord's death. Uh, like the Jews, of whom it is said in Acts chapter 13, when Paul came in 
to uh, to the synagogue to bring uh, the, the words of life, the gospel. It says they were contradicting and blaspheming, and they judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. Acts chapter thirteen, toward the end of that chapter. Now we know that there's nothing good in themselves, nothing good in ourselves, right? We're unworthy. I am unworthy to take of his grace. Wonderful grace, so free, we sometimes sing. But we're unworthy. There was nothing good in themselves, but they were unwilling, as I understand it, to receive for themselves the grace that justifies freely. They judged themselves unfit to be saved in that way. Right? Now, the Gentiles that were in that that synagogue, they they, they, they couldn't wait for the next week for Paul to come back. And it filled up. Because they were going to respond. But the Jews, the, the, the Jews, they deliberately and solemnly rejected the gospel and so they were not suited to enter the everlasting life. They judged themselves unworthy. But notice, they had been regarded worthy by the one that sent to invite them. Isn't that wonderful? What a loving God we had while we were yet sinners, right? Christ died for us. God has sent that invitation And he counts us worthy, right? He counts unworthy sinners worthy to be invited into such a wonderful joy. But they had declared their unworthiness by their refusal to come. So the third invitation is in verse 9. No longer confined to the house of Israel, as it had been during the period covered by the Gospels and the Acts. But praise the Lord. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, other sheep, right? Other sheep. I have, which are not of this fold. That includes you and me. Notice in the Acts, right? Lo, Paul said, we turn to the Gentiles. The salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, he says in Acts chapter 28, and they will hear it. Right? Wonderful. They will hear it. In other words, here, I believe, we find the whole purpose of God to maintain a testimony for himself on earth, in spite of the rejection of his beloved son by the very nation that he came to call unto himself. He came unto his own, and his own received not. Now, these new invitees, as it were, correspond to the other nation. Remember, in Matthew chapter 21, that he would give, uh, give the fruits, the vineyard, to another nation that will bring forth the fruit um, Thereof, that's in Matthew chapter 23. And I understand this as a reference to the church where Jew and Gentile alike are, are, are coming into the one body of Christ. Now, in the consideration of the quest for guests, it is the nation as a whole that rejected the invitation. Obviously, there was a remnant, right? Obviously, there was a remnant and there were individual Jews that did respond. But the nation as a whole rejected the gracious invitation And so it was sent out to the Gentiles. And it seems clear that this going forth of the servants stand for the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Paul would later write in Romans chapter 11, by their fall, referring to the nation of Israel, by their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles. And then the Holy Spirit would later testify through Paul in that same chapter, I believe. He talked about a time when the fullness of the Gentiles would would, would come in. Now, as earlier mentioned, I, I mentioned about this uh, parable being a prophetic parable. Why? Well, as I understand it, it parallels the Lord's program for the evangelization 
of the world. The apostles, according to Acts chapter 1, were to begin in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. They were to reach out beyond their scope, right, of locale. And so, for nearly 2,000 years, praise the Lord, this invitation to come to this feast in honor of the beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, and to come into this wonderful fellowship. What superb joy is found in, 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 in God's beloved Son and His Holy Word to come into this fellowship. But still there's room, right? Still there's room. It's still the invites are going out. The invites are going out. And, and it's going on to this very day. And even in this time of crisis, right? So Israel is set aside nationally, right? Israel is set aside nationally, and the gospel goes out to Gentiles, verse number 10. And notice the phrase, bad and good. Bad and good. I understand that as a description of all kinds of people. We know that there are none good by nature. If they were, they wouldn't need the gospel, right? But some are worse than others, right? And have special need of it. None can be saved without it. But blessed be God, it goes out to bad and good. There are all kinds of degrees, right, of individuals, of humanity, right? Like Cornelius, the Bible describes him as a just man. He, uh, as I understand it, he was, was, was not far from the kingdom of God, but he had to hear words whereby he must be saved. And blessed be God, the Lord sent a servant. And Cornelius heard those words and he came into the kingdom. He came into the feast, the joy that is to be found in the presence of the blessed God and his beloved son. So the bad and the good were gathered in. And that there's where we come. Let's consider the respondees that come into uh, Christendom that respond to the invitation. We refer back to Matthew chapter 13, right? Well, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. You have bad and good that come in, right? And some are just mere professors, right? You have the good fish, the bad fish. You have the wheat, the tares or the darnel, right? That are in the kingdom, all come in for the joy that is to be found in the blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. And they come in for various motives, right? We don't know that we have a record of the word of God, what some, how some came in, right? Some came in like Simon in Acts chapter 8. He wanted more uh, magical power, right? Give me this power, he said to Peter, that I may uh, give the Holy Spirit to whomever I want to give, right? I doubt very much. Uh, that Simon was saved, but he he was baptized, right? And he believed, right? And 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 then we we keep going. We have false brethren. Paul speaks about false brothers in, in Galatians chapter two. They came in to spy out the liberty that we have in Christ. There again, you can see the 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 kingdom of heaven and the and the the, the tree that grows up in the branches where the birds of the air come in and they bring in all kind of false doctrine. Then you have a guy like Diotrephes who loved to have the preeminence. Here he was in the church, right? He loved to have the preeminence. And by the way, that's only spoken of the Lord Jesus. And all things, he might have the preeminence. But here was one that John goes on to describe as evil. Don't follow that which is evil. But Diotrephes was there, you see. So you have all kind that come in, bad and good, wheat and tares, and all these kind of things. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we're going to see what happens as we move here in this last section. In verse 11 through 14, we have the subjects of inspection, detection, and damnation. Awful, awful end. The inspecting time. You have the viewing time. Here's the Lord in verse 11 and 12. That the king came in to look over the dinner, the dinner guests. 
Here's the king coming in to make an inspection upon those that responded and came or professed to come or actually did come. Right? And he saw there, here's detection, here's detection, not only inspection, but he saw one that did not have on a wedding garment. The reality of each individual is going to be tested. The man without a wedding garment is one who professes to be ready for the kingdom, but has never been clothed in the righteousness of God through the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The king said, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? Now I want to say something here. As I understand it, <clears throat> the scene of this inspection and detection is not in heaven, as I understand it. Only those who are Christ's, who are truly born again and saved by his precious blood and in possession of eternal life will be in heaven and none of those will ever be cast out. Blessed be his name. Never be cast out. We're secure in Christ. So it seems that this refers to what the Lord Jesus referred to in Matthew chapter 13. Right? This inspection and detection time. In Matthew chapter 13, we read the, up at the end of the age. That seems to be the key here. The end of the age. The harvesters are angels, it says there. And this fact, the harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. This fact gives the ending of the time period suggested by, by both of these parables, actually. The end of the age represents the conclusion of the present age uh, before Christ establishes the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom that is described uh, in the word of God. So I repeat, the, the indication, the parable itself doesn't say when. The parable itself does not say when this judgment is to take place or where or in what order, right? But it seems in a general way, in a general way, he is teaching this as a warning, as a warning that through that though his invitation is going out, and many hear and respond, yet not all will respond properly and put on that garment of salvation. Right? Many judge themselves unworthy. Right? Oh no! I, they, 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 I could never be saved like that. I would never be saved the same as that poor heathen. Oh no! I have too much righteousness of my own. But only the wedding garment makes us fit. For the king. Only the righteousness of Christ. You know, there are those, Romans 10, that go about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Those can only expect, like this man, damnation. We had inspection. First, we had detection. A man without the wedding garment. And then we have damnation. The Lord... Jesus Christ himself is the garment. And all who are mere professors of Christ without having put on the Lord Jesus will be cast into outer darkness. Solemn. Awful fate for everyone who does not have Christ to cover him. 
Oh, you know, we can cover ourselves in all kind of ways, right? There's all kind of aspects and good things. Listen, Christendom is full of good people that are going to end up with this awful fate. Sometimes they come around and knock on our door, invite us into the church of Jesus Christ. But they're not. Their Jesus is another Jesus, right? So we thank our God that we understand the truth of Scripture. If we use the Word of God as the the uh, plumb line of truth, we understand that no righteousness in me is found except upon redemption ground. We need the Savior. We cannot be saved without Him. But what has happened to here? That this man, however he may cover himself, right? He may be moral. He may be religious. He may be, be a good philanthropist, right? But if he has not put on Christ, he's naked and he's cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So just to elaborate a little here, just like in Matthew chapter 13, is the professing sphere of Christendom where the Lord's name is professed. His gracious gospel invitation is heard, but it's in a mixed condition. It's composed of professors. And possessors, those that profess the name of Christ and those that possess the name of Christ. The invitation is going out. Many hear and follow the call, but not all believe with the heart unto salvation. Romans chapter 10. The man without the wedding garment is representative of this class and a large class it is. But damnation is the final call. Somebody sent me a little thing on, probably it was on Facebook, I don't know, I got it on my text, and said something like this, a little artist drawing. Do you know what's scarier than COVID-19? The words, depart from me, I never knew you. It is an awful fate, it is an awful solemn truth that Christendom is full. Mega churches are full. Minor churches are full of those that profess the name of Christ but do not possess that eternal life. They're depending on their own self for righteousness. But the divine presence will unmask all that is unreal and disentangle everything. We see that in Matthew chapter 13. We see that in Matthew chapter 25. The sheep, the goats, right? It's a wonderful thing to know that our blessed Lord will untangle everything. Solemn sentence. And notice, there's no trial. The offense is too great, right? No need for any further examination from the king. The sentence is at once passed out. And he contrasts the dark dungeon outside the brightness of the banqueting hall, cast into the outer darkness. We, My wife and I visited... Um, San Francisco many years ago. And one of the tourist attractions that we went to was Alcatraz Island. And one of the many things I remember about uh, that former federal penitentiary, that part of the torment of those prisoners being in that island, a, a jail, prison, was they could hear the joys and the celebrations of the city across the bay. And here they were in this dark dungeon, many in solitary confinement, 
What an awful fate. What an awful torment, you see. And that's what happened to this man, right? Solemn sentence. He's bound hand and foot. He's cast into outer darkness. Banished from the king's presence. It has to be total darkness because Christ himself is the light. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, it says, right? Weeping may uh, be reflective of the remorse of the deserved torment. While the gnashing of teeth seems to be a reference to show the rebellion of one who stubbornly resists. Still, you know, that's so in Revelation. When God pours out all those judgments on, a, on an unbelieving world, it says that the people, they, they will not repent. And here, they, this man, he gnashes his teeth. It's God's will committed against man's will. And then the closing statement, and we're done. Many are called and few are chosen. It seems to me that we have a reflective statement here of the scriptural balance between God's sovereignty and man's will. The the invitations to the wedding feast have gone out to many, representative of everyone to whom the gospel message is sent. And only a few will respond uh, to that because they were willing to accept it and be among the chosen. The gospel invitation is sent to everyone because it is not the Father's will that any should perish. You know, one of the hardest things in the world to do is go to hell because the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there are many that are going against the will of God and pitting their will against God's will. What an awful thing. Not everyone wants God. But many who claim to want him are not willing to come on his terms. Those who are saved come in and are willingly accept his sovereign Gracious provision. Those that are lost are excluded from the kingdom because they were uh, they rejected that offer of sovereign grace to have the righteousness of Christ put upon him. And notice he was speechless. What could he say? What could he say? It seems obvious that he could have come in with wedding clothes had he been willing. Right? What? Think about this. The king's invitation went out to the highways and the byways. Did they have time? Did they even have the money to, to, to gather a, a, a wedding garment to come into this the, the, the feast of the king? Could they? No, he, it, it seems clear. The implication is that the king gave the garment to, to the ones that came. But this man, he was speechless because he did not take it. He was not willing. He was not willing. The fact that they all had, all the guests had that wedding garment, but he didn't indicates that he must have made provision. The king must have made provision for the clothes. He had a great opportunity before this, but he never displayed the godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation that would have caused him to be rightfully there in the kingdom. Now, some may say, I'm not. maybe I'm not among the chosen. Well, a person will never be among the chosen unless they heed that gospel call. The invitation is the call. How many are chosen? Those who respond to the call, who accept that gift of righteousness, not depending on their own selves, those who trust Christ, trust Christ to save you. Millions are called, but thousands are chosen because the great majority refuse to accept the grace and the garment of salvation that Jesus the king offers. And then just in closing, one minute, and we're done. Praise the Lord for this parable. But you know, there are those right here that went off into darkness. You see? We didn't read it, but verse 15. The Lord had 
foretold in the three in the trilogy of parables, the trio of parables, the fearful doom of Jerusalem and its evil leaders was predicted. But the Pharisees here in verse 15, they're silent in the presence of the king as they move off, determined to refuse the light that the Lord Jesus offered them. They had nothing to say, no confession to make, led by their own evil hearts. They slink off under the control of Satan and turn their backs on the Lord. Light refused becomes darkness. The Lord Jesus said, right, in another place, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is a solemn word, especially for our day, right? Light is received. What a wonderful thing. God gives us the light of his salvation and along with the truth revealed. But if it's not acted upon and followed, it results in darkness. And not only for the present, but for eternity. Depart from me, I never knew you. The blackness of darkness forever. We praise the Lord for this wonderful parable that gives us an outline of how he's dealing with the world. Seven billion people and the, the gracious offer of this invitation that is going out to come into the joy of his salvation. Shall we pray? Our Father, we're thankful for these words uttered by the Lord Jesus. We who know him bless our Savior's name, that our sins are all forgiven. To suffer once to earth he came, he now is found in heaven. We bless him, O God. You have made this feast in honor of him, and we have come. We have responded by, uh, by faith and received that righteousness which only you can give. We have no righteousness in, in and of ourselves, but we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. And we have that garment of salvation and we are secure for all eternity. But our prayer now is as we who have this security will continue to reach out, to continue the call and to, to, to one way or another uh, make others aware. There's still room. There's still room in this wonderful feast for those that are outside to come in. And we pray that we might take our responsibility as well and share that glorious message in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.